Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. This is Yevgeny, Editor-in-Chief at Data Center Knowledge. We have with us today Rob Johnson, his CEO of Vertiv. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, very excited to be here today and uh, share our story and talk a little bit about Vertiv and the market. Thank you. You just mentioned you're, you're back in the office. What's that like? Well, it's, uh, it, it depends. You know, we operate in 130 different countries, so it uh, depends on where we are in the world and the vaccination rates. We're kind of watching that closely, but our official return to office for the U.S. is going to be after, uh, after Labor Day. And then we'll have a protocol of bringing people back. Uh, those that are vaccinated uh, don't have to wear masks. Those that um, don't want to share whether they're vaccinated or not um, should wear masks for a period of time and, and again, until the vaccination rates get to where they be. So it's people are really, I think, excited to get back into the office and they've been working really hard. Our employees have done a fantastic job during COVID, but engineers need to work with engineers. They need to be in the labs. Uh, so it's uh, it's something that we're just going to, we're going to take safety and employees' uh, health as number one. And then we'll look at, uh, you know, the openings as we go throughout the throughout the world. But I think it's going to take, you know, in some places, maybe not till mid next year. Globally, I was curious, um, how are you feeling today about where we are in the course of the pandemic? Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling good about us. So we operate, like I mentioned, 130 different countries. India was hit hard recently, as you've seen in the news. Right. Uh, we have about a thousand employees there, uh, but we're actually uh, our employees have been uh, safer coming to the factories and then actually staying at the factories overnight because we're able to uh, feed them, uh, keep them uh, from being exposed. But I'd say globally, we still see hotspots, right? We see where there's low vaccination rates. We continue to see, uh, you know, things fluctuate. As you probably read in the news, you know, just recently with Japan, now they're on a lockdown, state of emergency affecting the Olympics. So I would say we're not through this yet, um, but the vaccination rates uh, are, are going to dictate when when we go back and, and local law as well. I mean, there's a lot of countries right now that just will not allow you to, to go back in the office. So we'll follow all the laws and we want to make sure that our employees feel comfortable and safe and that, you know, we've got all the right protocols, whether it's daily cleaning that's necessary or, or, or those types of things. Your factory workers in India have been quarantining at the factories? They, they have been. And when we first opened up, one of the things we were asked to do was to provide cots and places for them to sleep. And so we did that. So some are and, and, and some aren't. As India um, you know, begins to open up, India went through a couple of phases. Uh, first, uh, you know, shut down. And then when they shut down, people weren't being able to get fed. So they had to open back up so people didn't starve. But then the pandemic got really, really bad. And so then they had to close back down. So it was a matter of getting food to people. So we've got some programs where we've been helping, you know, our factory workers uh, feed their families and, and helping the community where we can. But it's a 
it's if you've been to India, uh, it's it's a difficult place to quarantine people, and it, people are in close quarters to begin with. Uh, but I think uh, what we're seeing is the rates are going down. Uh, they began to get it under control, and uh, we're feeling better about that. Let's go back um, about a year or more than a year. Can you re just recall the moment you realized the COVID nineteen pandemic is here? It's real, and that you'll have to make some big decisions about the company's operations. Yeah, a great question. I, you know, I recalled it. It was actually early February for me because I was uh, in um, in China in late January uh, doing a kickoff. Of, uh, I had three uh, hundred employees from every province in China, and we were having celebration early and. Uh, I remember beginning to hear right as I got back, as I touched down in the U.S., that wow, there's some there's some virus going around in China, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, am I going to get this, or my employees going to get this? But yeah, it was probably uh, early February that began to understand, and it really wasn't until probably late February that we uh, we kind of put our plan in action and our, our global teams, which I'm super proud of really got to work quickly. You know, as factories were shut down, uh, you know, we, like I said, we operate in 130 different countries. Uh, we had to work with local governments. Uh, we had to do special things, for example, in Mexico. Uh, one of the ways we got to open up much earlier than others is we were considered um, uh, uh, the, the company that needed to operate during this pandemic because cell towers needed to be up and running so people could communicate. And so we were essential from that perspective. But we uh, came up with an idea of, of feeding the neighbors and, and having our employees go home and feed their neighbors and, and do that. Therefore, the local governments were happy that we were participating and allowed us to open up with, with social distancing and, and safe protocols. And, and I'm really proud of what the team did and, and really how they mobilized uh, you know, globally from that perspective. That's such a, such a contrast. So, you know, here in the U.S., we went on lockdown, but not to a point where people didn't have anywhere to get their food. You know, you could still go to the store. Yeah, we're a little bit sheltered here, right? And, and seeing some of the things that are happening around the rest of the world. Uh, uh, but we're happy as a company to participate and, and do what we can, uh, where we can, uh, for not only our employees, but the communities we, we work in. What were the first big decisions you had to make, big hard decisions? Uh, there were several, right? We just uh, we had just gone out and uh, became a public company uh, right before it hit hard here in the U.S. Yeah. We were, I think, one of the last people to... Uh, do the opening bell on the stock exchange before they even shut that down. So I think what we've, you know, first and foremost, it was safety. You're getting out our safety protocols, determining you know, where we were going to shut down uh, and, and really focus on the customers, uh, the, the customers, but focus on our employee safety first, but the customers and taking care of them because we, we service hospitals. We, 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 you know, we service critical infrastructure for telemedicine. Um, you know, we, we, power uh, a lot of the world's communication networks. So we had to figure out how to safely and come up with protocols and get the appropriate uh, gear for our service people to get into sites. We have about 3,000 service people globally, and it was important for them to get in and repair systems, put the new systems in that were necessary. Networks were being overloaded. So I think it was taking care of our customers and first the safety of the employees. and. And again, we quickly mobilized and, and shut things down where we had to, uh, shut factories down um, where we needed to, till we could bring them up safely. And uh, it was a, it more, more of a difficult, uh, difficult task on that side of it. Uh, but we didn't have a playbook for a pandemic, but, but the team really put one together and, and we'll uh, memorialize that and pull it together for any future um, 
uh, responses that we need. So it was it was really employee safety first, then making sure we're taking care of our customers, getting the factories back up and running, and and did all that quickly, and, and dealing with the local governments. Uh, and, was and, really it was the different, so, and it was different. And it was different everywhere around the world. Different rules. Um, I imagine it's it's impossible to to make decisions globally from one um, from a central location or how did you handle this you know how much to delegate to local managers on the ground to make those decisions what what to shut down what not to shut down and how much uh, was decided at the top that's uh that, that's a great question first of all we've got a um, the way we're organized is we have um presidents in each one of our regions so we empower them our, our employees are empowered and they empower down to their managers so we, we did let them. It wasn't me at Central Command making all the calls, close this factory, don't do that. No, we, we entrusted our employees uh, to do the right thing. And I was really proud of the response uh, globally. And, you know, in each country, they kind of had to follow a different set of rules. We had guidelines that we provide them uh, and say, hey, work within this framework. If you can't, we need to talk about it. We had uh, daily uh, sometimes twice, three times a day calls um, where regions had, had issues or problems. That's where corporate gave support. And that's kind of how we operate. Corporate's not there to, you know, kind of overrule and, and, and run everything down to the micro uh, at, at a country level. It's really there to provide guidelines, provide support, and, and, and be that help. And which adjustments that were made in response to the pandemic are you guys keeping for the long term? Well, I think we've, uh, as, as a company, have really learned how to use the digital tools, right? And that was uh, that was something that uh, I would say would have taken years from a transformation perspective to get everybody to use Teams or, or uh, you know, whatever your, your your favorite platform is. And that happened overnight, right? And so those types of tools, um, give you an example, and it happened to be where you just were in Croatia. Croatia is a show place for us, so it's a really good place to take customers. And we had a situation where we had a very large hyperscale company that needed to get to our facility to understand our capabilities, tour it to our products. And we actually uh, used uh, the digital tools to take them on a virtual tour and as if they were there. So it really, we really recognized between using the digital tools that we could, um, we could be more efficient and more effective. So uh, those types of things we're going to continue to do uh, and get more customers to our factories virtually and, and have them have that almost real-life experience without having to fly halfway around the world and schedule it six months in advance and spend you know tens of thousands of dollars in doing it. So I think that's one example of something that we've learned and will continue to drive through, uh, through this COVID period. From a service perspective, right, being able to have cameras on site, have remote experts uh, use the digital tools as well. That's something that um, we just had to do because we couldn't get everybody traveling um, out there. So we had eyes. What sorts of what sorts of tools are you talking about? Yeah, so it, uh, more cameras and more video and, and just more online or just-in-time training from that perspective. So if we couldn't get one of our experts, uh, you know, because we were locked by borders, we were locked by, you know, uh, if we couldn't get an expert that we needed to fly in, we were able to do virtual sessions and, and have those service people work uh, and, and direct or guide um, those uh, boots on the ground to, to do the right things. And we hadn't done that in the past. So it's almost a, a new way for us to think that we can have a, a, a centralized, like super tier four, tier five, like uh, support uh, and not have to have that necessarily deployed everywhere in the region because we can use the tools. So it's a lower lower cost way to provide essentially the same amount of service. 
Yeah, lower cost and, and, and probably better service for the customer as well. As you mentioned, you guys went public in at the end of 2019, uh, went public through a SPAC merger before it was cool. What's it like operating <laughs> as a public company? Um, executives are normally happier when they're private without all the, all the <laughs> pressure. Yeah, well, it's I, I've been in both private and public, and, and public does bring a different aspect. But for us, it was, uh, it was the journey that we wanted to go through. And so f f when I step back, when we started this spin out of Emerson uh, about four or five years ago, the whole goal was to be the independent largest, you know, digital critical infrastructure company in the world. And we wanted to do that by, uh, by being public. And the public markets had brought to us, uh, we're an innovative company. That's how we kind of position ourselves, uh, innovation first, taking care of the customer first, of course, through innovative solutions. And when you're privately owned, um, and, and our partner, Platinum Equity, was phenomenal in investing in the business. Uh, they really did in many ways. But we needed access to that capital. We needed to free our debt burden so that we could uh, increase our R&D. And as I mentioned, innovation is our vector of differentiation. And so we've announced publicly and have been taking up our R&D. You know, we hired thousands of people during the uh, pandemic and uh, continue to do so to boost our innovation side of things. So the public company side allowed us to do that. The SPAC, you know, everybody's like, wow, you know, SPAC. SPAC was a very efficient vehicle. And uh, with the SPAC came David Cody, uh, who's my executive chairman. And if you don't know David Cody, he's world renowned for what he's done with Honeywell. He took Honeywell from about a $20 billion market cap to $120 billion over a period of uh, 10 right. or 12 years. Like he's the executive and, who's uh, resuscitated Honeywell. Yeah, exactly. And so we've learned a lot from him, too. So when, when he and I first met and talked about doing the SPAC thing and going public uh, and him being the executive chair, we want to make sure there was chemistry there. And we've learned a lot from each other. I've learned more from him and the company has that things that we're applying today. So I would say all in all, with the exception of part of the public company headache stuff that comes along, it's been a great journey for us and, and continues to be that way. Uh, our stock has is, is performed uh, in a way that I didn't think it would over the last uh, year, year and a half. And we're up about, uh, you know, we were at $10 when we came out. We're at $27 a share today. Uh, good return for the share owners and allows us to, uh, to do things. Um, you know, our, our, our strategy is focused on innovation at first and not innovating just to innovate, but there's a lot of problems to solve in data centers. And secondly, uh, organic uh, and inorganic activity. And we haven't done much of the inorganic. We did early on, but we haven't. But now we're in a position to, if there's something that we want, uh, technology we need or want to go after, uh, we have the ability to go do that now. As you guys were preparing to go public, you said a lot about uh, how this this deal would enable you to, to do acquisitions that you weren't able to do under private equity ownership. Um, so kind of two questions here. What sorts of acquisitions looked attractive at the time? And second question, uh, which is probably the answer is the pandemic, is why haven't you done any since the merger? Sure. Well, uh, a couple things. First of all, we did do three acquisitions under, uh, under Platinum Equity. So we, we were able to buy some companies. And what we learned from doing that was uh, we're not buying, uh, we're not looking for companies just to take market share. We're looking for companies that provide us with additional capabilities that our customers need and want. We've become a very collaborative company and, and we have a lot of partnerships. And so what I look for is a, a technology or a capability that we need as a company that it's probably better to go and faster to go pick it up than try to organically uh, 
uh, created and find one that then we can put in our global system and really scale it. So whether it was Geist that we did early on, which has been just an incredible acquisition for us, we've taken them globally and, and grown that business, you know, threefold. Uh, our uh, Eli, uh, another big one that we did. That's what we're really looking for. So we've got, and we've talked publicly about this, we've got, you know, 50 to 100 prospects. The types of companies we look at probably aren't other publicly traded companies. They're typically entrepreneurially owned. And there are gems that are sitting out there that are providing some type of, uh, of capability that uh, the larger companies can't do. So we'll continue to look, and it is part of our strategy, but we wanted to first get public and um, take our, 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 uh, our debt, restructure that, and be able to, um, uh, be able to get our, our, our liquidity where we want it. And now we feel like we're in a good position. So if the right thing comes along... We will uh, we'll continue to uh, we'll continue to evaluate those those opportunities. We're not we don't have money burning a hole in our pocket, but we have the uh, now capability to do uh, uh, the right acquisition if if it comes along. I see. So you haven't done an acquisition last year, not because of the no. pandemic, just because the right one didn't. Yeah, didn't we're always. Itself. Yeah, the right. We're always constantly talking to companies, and and sometimes, especially when you're looking at entrepreneurial-owned companies, it's emotional for them. Do they want to sell now? Is it the right time to sell? And and there's usually a courtship, right? Uh, they want to get to know you, and and a lot of these companies will partner with first. We get to know each other, and then they say, "Oh, it'd be great to be part of the Vertiv family," and that's kind of how we look at uh, look at things. And the culture fit's got to be there, so. You know, I, I assume in the future, you know, we'll be uh, we'll be doing some things there. I wanted to ask you about the supply chain issues that everybody's experiencing now. Um, you've said that the current issues have had an impact on Vertiv, um, but that you guys have been able to mostly mitigate them so far. Uh, can you just give us a few examples to illustrate some of the, you know, what were those impacts and um, how you've been addressing them? Sure. So there's, uh, you know, the supply chain's been affected in a couple different ways, I would say. Uh, one, you know, just the COVID side, and two, uh, the growth. Um, we, we posted in, in Q1. We haven't we haven't posted our Q2 yet. We just closed, but in Q1, we were over 20% year-over-year growth in both orders and uh, in sales. So we've seen an increase in demand while we've had supply constraints because of factory shutdowns and COVID. So there's that kind of two-punch hit going on right now, and. You know, our guys are, and I really like our our, our team, our supply chain team. Uh, they they got ahead of it early on and, and went out and, and bought things, uh, gave purchase orders. You know, even through 2022. That being said, things like, for example, fans. Uh, there's a few really really good fan suppliers in the world, and we use a lot of fans in our thermal management units. And so those are um, constrained today. Uh, and again, we work through that on a day to day basis. Um, it's no new news to anybody that the whole um, semiconductor space is just underserved and it takes a while for a few fabs. There's several of them from TI to TSMC have all announced uh, new fabs going in, but it's going to take time till they come online. So there's been a chip shortage as well. I mean, the automotive electrifications sucking down a lot of chips, lithium ion batteries have been you know, an issue. And then you fight all that and then you've got commodities going up, steel, copper, everything like that. So it's kind of a Market's red hot. People want the products. Prices are going up and you can't get the stuff. It's a perfect storm. So what we've done is uh, really communicated with our customers. And people understand that. I mean, concrete, trying to get concrete, plastics, 
uh, it, there's all kinds of issues. Uh, I've actually been under construction at home since COVID, and it's just, and I'm going to be there for another year, just trying to get, you know, plywood or things like that. And, and uh, so, but, but I think we're managing well. It's a, it's a day-to-day thing, and it's working with our customers, and it's ordering ahead. It's being smart. It's adding second suppliers, which we've done as well. Um, we've engineers work really hard to get alternate parts put in our products so that we can keep our customers uh, happy and, and up and running. But, you know, for anybody to say it hasn't impacted their customers or still isn't going to for a while, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're fooling themselves because, you know, it's, you know, globally you can see it happening. And so, and so in addition to longer lead times, I think you mentioned the cost has gone up also. Um, you said you would look for ways to sort of pass that cost on to customers, if I understood it correctly. Um, can you give us some examples of products that have gone up in price or will as a result um, of all this and, and by how much? Like what sort of cost increases are we talking about? Yeah, well, I, I would say in general, um, uh, our customers and partners uh, are, are pretty good about um, understanding what's happening in the market. So uh, across the board, I, you would look at uh, certainly distribution. And I think there's been some things publicized that uh, distribution prices in the IT distribution channel have gone up. And uh, distributors and our you know, resellers, they like that in, in some ways. Um, but we kind of follow the market. When I say follow, we follow and lead. You know, where we have a lead position in, in, in a product category, um, we'll, we'll lead on price. Where we have kind of a uh, not not so strong position, we'll take price, but we'll, we'll monitor. We, we're pretty sophisticated, and even prior to the pandemic, in how we get price, and, and we uh, we use some tools, analytics to be able to understand. Hey, if I'm a salesman in this part of the country, I'm selling at this price, and I've lost at this price, and compared to this part of the country where somebody's selling. So our, our salespeople can actually go into our systems and say, okay, here's the suggested price that I want to give the customer. And uh, it will say, well, at that price, you'll probably lose the order. At this price, you're too cheap. And so using tools. So I think in general, you know, the customers, um, they need the product, but we're not one of those companies that's out there gouging people. We're, we're just trying to recover what our costs are that are going up um, so that we can take care of you know, our shareholders. And so we've, we've done it pretty methodically, and it's been across the board. We have a big backlog, and uh, those things are hard to reprice. But one area that I think all companies look to is, is freight. Freight has gotten very expensive. You know, shipping containers, if you can get one, uh, over-the-road freight, spot freight. And so those are things that um, customers understand, that hey, the, the price goes up. They're paying for you know, raw materials and other places that... Uh, they kind of they kind of expect that, but I think it's 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 something we do pretty precisely, and we try to do it in the spirit of partnership, so that um, we're not taking advantage of of our customers at this time. And and I've seen other people do that, and I've seen suppliers do it to us as well. Sounds like you take it sort of at a case by case by case basis and um, kind of manage it on that level. Absolutely. I'm interested in the hyperscale versus enterprise data center dynamic nowadays. Um, how would you characterize the mix of revenue you guys get from enterprise data center sales versus hyperscale today? I know maybe even a year ago it was heavier. You had a lot more revenue coming from the enterprise um, than hyperscale. What's it like now? Yeah. So if you if you break down our company, you know we're uh, you know uh, 
we're about 70% in, in what we call the core data center space. Uh, we're about uh, 20% in the telecom, you know, which is different than a lot of our, our competitors that you might know about. Uh, and then we're 10% in commercial industrial. So of the 70%, typically it was around 70, 80% of that would be kind of enterprise slash edge, if you will. And then the other portion would be colo and hyperscale. We, we intermingle colo and hyperscale just because there's a lot of hyperscale people using colos in other parts of the world to build their data centers out. So that's a that's a uh, that's an area. So I would say you know what we talk about in the market is you know, are certainly the hyperscale and colo is growing much faster uh, than the enterprise. Enterprise uh, we don't have the data for 2021 or 2020 yet, uh, but. Just from what I've seen, it shrank in some areas, was flat, maybe up a percent in some other areas. It depended on the parts of the world. You know, co-location and, and hyperscale, we see growing at double digits. So you know, our, our mix is, is probably of the, call it 100% data center business, probably 30% of it's now colo, kind of colo hyperscale and maybe 70% of it's still, still core enterprise. There's a lot of data centers out there, as you know, uh, a lot of service revenue coming from those data centers. And... You know, while, while a lot of people have said death of the data center, um, we see the data center, we really call it reconfiguration and, and going to hybrid. And that plays really well to, well to us. But uh, we, uh, we, we like the growth we see in the hyperscale and the colo, and we think that continues globally. Uh, and that's where Vertic really plays a, a great position because um, unlike the early days where people wanted to build snowflakes, different data centers, different equipment, different parts of the world. People are really wanting to standardize now, and Vertiv is one of the few choices that can provide the entire suite of products and do it in 130 different countries. And so we're getting a lot of traction with that. Um, the modular stuff, as I mentioned to you, was something that uh, is really picking up, both on the enterprise and in the uh, colo and hyperscale. And you know, our roots of that came out of Croatia, but we've now expanded the capabilities in the U.S. and, and um, Asia Pacific. So we'll continue to see that modular Pre-skidded, prefabricated, uh, built in the built in the um, factories, and then shipped on site. Because hyperscale and colo is growing so much faster, what sort of things have you guys done to align your products business strategy to go after that sector more aggressively? We had two uh, two parts to our thesis when when we acquired this company uh, when I was with Platinum and we acquired the company from from Emerson. One was we've got to grow in the hyperscale and colo space. We've got to, you know, continue to take share in enterprise, and we've got to grow the, the IT channel. That was really our simple strategy that we continue to, to, you know, I talk about it publicly all the time. That's what we're doing. It's no secret. Um, but how we've done it is is kind of a little bit of the, the magic. So by increasing our R&D spend, and like I said, we're going from 3% of revenue to 6%, so doubling that, and we've been able to drive what we call collaborative partnerships. So, for example... With a hyperscaler, we'll work with them or Colo uh, on their unique needs and put not instead of in, in the past it would have been we just try to sell them a widget, right? Now it's let's collaboratively design what you need two to three years from now. And by the way, I'll put special R and D source resources on it to make that come true. That seems to really resonate with with our customers because typically a hyperscaler or even some of the large colos, they want their cake the way they want it, right? You know, they don't want all chocolate or all vanilla. They want it done special, and they think they have some unique sauce, and, and they do. So we've uh, expanded that, put more and more uh, application engineers, and, and really driven that collaborative partnership to, 
to help them accomplish their needs. Um, so you're talking about custom power or cooling systems that absolutely. you guys help them design, and then who owns the IP after that? So typically, you know, what's our IP is our IP, what's theirs is theirs. Um, you know, some of these partnerships, when you come together, well, there'll be some joint IP. If there is IP developed there, there'll be some joint IP. Um, and so we just kind of uh, we kind of work through it case by case. Is there not a specific uh, case that's one, one better than the other? But i give you an example. Um, outside the U.S., it, it gets more and more difficult to finding data center experts and, and, and talent, even general contractors, to install this stuff. So we'll find ourselves creating modular solutions that can ship anywhere in the world and be assembled with the skill, uh, skilled labor that they have that maybe isn't is trained on doing data centers. So we've got to foolproof it, and that causes us to really do more modular, more pre-integrated, prefabricated systems. And so that's been done through a partnership. But you, I wouldn't say, you know, we're going to make anything anybody wants anyway. We typically have a base building block of a power system that then if somebody wants it done this specific way or this type of firmware, or it to be grid interactive, uh, those are things that we'll do. We'll make software and firmware uh, you know, changes within our products to, to accommodate uh, their, their potential needs. But we've grown through that collaborative partnership and it seems to have worked worked really well for us. Has has there emerged uh, sort of a, a sweet spot project, hyperscale project for for you guys? What do hyperscalers come to Vertif for today? It it's changed so much over the last four years. I would say they um, certainly they come for the integrated power solutions uh, and the thermal management. You know, we we were one of the few companies of our size. Um, I'd say the only one that has thermal management, for example, globally, um, which you'll find is niche players in certain parts of the world. But my traditional competitors, you know, larger competitors would not have that. So the, the integration of our thermal management, what makes ours special is the, uh, the ability to um, not use water with one of our systems. It's a patented system. And water, as you know, is a scarce resource in parts of the world. So being able to ship that type of product and, and have that available is something that's uh, super interesting because the whole ESG thing that's going on, people are very concerned. It's also very efficient and, and effective. So that would be that would be one. I think where we really went out um, and what they like about Vertiv is our service organization. We have over 3,000 field service people uh, working day in and day out. And this equipment's going to break at some point in time. It's going to have an issue. And I think that's where you know, Verta really shines in, in the ability to um, take care of them, have people local, and get them back up and running when something does happen. So even even hyperscalers, uh, a Google or an Amazon, um, even though they like to do a lot of things on their own, uh, they still like to be able to call somebody to, to come fix their cooling system or something. Absolutely. And there's certain things they can do themselves on, on maintenance and there's certain things that, uh, you know, the manufacturer would have to would have to do. I think what's happening right now, which is pretty exciting, is as cloud continues to build out globally and there's a lot of growth left there, uh, the advent of the edge is really happening now. And that's where you can get really innovative. And you've got to you know, we're finding that the edge in some cases is more critical for uptime, then we then we do see some of the cloud stuff where they just fail over from one cloud to another or one data center to another. The edge, because of latency and so on, is is, is become really a, a big topic, and we'll see that next wave. We've been talking about it for a while, but we're actually doing deployments, uh, and our thermal management, our complete system approach here works out perfectly because we can 
I'll give you an example for a large telco, I can mention their name, but we would provide them in the past just some gear and they would go out and assemble it on site at the cell tower. Now we ship a entirely integrated thermal management, power, security, all the radios get inserted. And so when it arrives on site, it's literally a day, hook it up and they're done and go. So those are some of the types of things that are changing and more demand for a complete system rather than just the parts. As you mentioned, you've been spending a lot of money on R&D. Um, I think last year, was it 230 million? Yes, yeah. yes, you're correct. Which technologies did that investment focus on? So we, uh, we vo focused really on all of our core categories. So uh, from thermal management, um, continually looking at new systems, new designs. You've, you've heard and seen some about immersion cooling, uh, chip yeah. level cooling. Certainly spending time in those areas, uh, we've talked about that publicly, uh, additional more efficient systems. Um, so thermal has had a lot of attention, but the power side as well, a power distribution, uh, busway systems and how we distribute the power. Uh, one of the most innovative things we have is uh, our rack mount PDUs. We have a patent around our universal uh, power distribution unit that you could buy one type and use different cords to plug it in anywhere in the world. So continue to try to simplify, standardize. Um, the software and services is another area that we continue to uh, you know, continue to invest in. So it, it's a combination of things. Grid-connected UPSs is, is really, uh, really important. When I say grid-connected, the ability to operate that within a, a, a microgrid or, or uh, be able to put power back on the grid, those are, those are things that... Uh, are very public and, and things that they expect us to, to be doing and, and continue to squeeze out efficiency as we go through it. But uh, those, are, those are some of the things that we've been spending you know, our R&D dollars on. I did want to talk um, a bit in more detail about the Grid Interactive UPS. What's the opportunity you guys are seeing there? I know you, you sort of featured, it was one of the featured products on your last earnings call, along with immersion cooling. Just talk to me about the Grid Interactive UPS. Um, it seems like something that's kind of only now st people are just starting to talk about or recently started to seriously talk about. It uh, seems like there's more momentum behind this in Europe than than here in the U.S. Um, just give me an, an overview of, of where you see things there. Yeah, it, it is something that you're absolutely right with the momentum and more, more so in Europe. And, and, and as people think uh, more and more about um, getting to their carbon neutral or, or carbon negative, uh, they've really got to look at um, a variety of things and um, how they can save energy. And so with the grid interactive UPS, a first step is just the ability to select, uh, turn, turn off the, the grid and, and use batteries. So you could either do it during peak shaving or uh, just use less electricity. Now, the advent of lithium batteries have really made this possible because with lead acid batteries, you'd wear those batteries out too quickly doing that. So a couple things have happened. Lithium has become pretty prevalent in the data center today. And then the ability to kind of interact uh, and, and go on battery for a period of time uh, during peak, peak sessions and so on and, and not, not have to pay those heavy uh, 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 spot rates for, for electricity and or do their part in, in, in conserving and, and using, using it at the right time of the day, especially some of the data centers in, that are integrated with renewables. You know, solar is great during the day, um, but doesn't work so well at night. Uh, wind uh, tends to blow more at night than the day. And so interacting and getting the right source, we announced a, um, a partnership with Honeywell in doing a controller that would allow you to select the best source 
uh, for fueling your, your powering your data center, whether it was a, a fuel cell or using using the wind or using the solar or using the grid itself. And I think you'll see more and more uh, people's willingness to use their uh, system in that way. Early on, people say, no way, this is my insurance policy. It's going to keep my data center up and running. I'm not going to mess with it whatsoever. And I think now people are saying, I can't get to where I need to get to unless I think creatively and think about different power sources, thinking about using my um, my system for more than just if the power goes out, I'm going to keep everything up and running. They're thinking, how can I interact and, and save and, and be more efficient and effective? So we're seeing this is just early stages. I uh, I think that the whole energy storage, which is an area I've, I've played in for the last 10, 10 years plus, uh, back to my A123 days, and I think that that's... Uh, early stages, but as lithium prices come down, as new battery technologies come out, uh, we'll see the replacement of things like peaker plants, right? You don't need a peaker gas turbine power plant when you can um, utilize batteries and inverters that we make that uh, that allow us to connect there. And so that's no different than us powering, let's say, a data center. So a lot, a lot more people thinking about the alternative energy, the green energy, and then multiple energy sources. So there's a lot of work still to be done there. And what sort of timeline um, are you envisioning here? So you you already have the product. If it does become a mainstream approach, uh, when do you think that's going to happen? And and also, I, I assume this is hyperscalers that are mainly interested in this kind of thing today. Yeah, well, uh, no, I would say it's it's more open to to more than just hyperscalers. I think you know the colos uh, colos are definitely interested in that as well. They've got a an ESG initiative as well. Um, like anything, uh, some some customers, uh, first movers, uh, you know, move quickly. People watch that. They talk about it. I, I think, you know, it's going to take uh, several years, uh, but we've seen some certain customers spec this now, hard spec it and say, I've got to have a grid interactive UPS capability. And it's if you don't have that, they may not be using it, but if you don't have it, so they're future-proofing their infrastructure by making sure they at least have the capability, whether they use it or not. Um, you know that's dependent. So I think I think it's going to take you know several years, like anything does, in order to um, uh, to see kind of a full adoption of this. But but it will happen over time for sure. Now immersion immersion cooling, which is another new thing you guys introduced recently. This is where you kind of put a server inside a tank full of engineered fluid. Um, it, the solution has been the idea, and and the solution has been out there for a while by other companies, smaller ones. Um, what uh, what was it that made you guys decide this is the time to do this, and and also not just buy another company, but roll out your own? Yeah, so uh, we've we've done some partnerships here. So um, and that's one thing that you know I was talking about earlier that. Uh, not always do we have the technology, so we'll, we'll partner with other companies and then we'll do what you know, parts of it what we do uh, best. You know, immersion cooling is in its early days, right? But if you're again driving more efficiency and effectiveness uh, for high uh, density computing, it makes a lot of sense, right? It just it does, and 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 it's just a more efficient system. And part of our our thoughts are, uh, and people have asked, well, Rob, you do you know air air cooling systems, and now you're doing immersion. Is this going to disrupt and, and and destroy your other part? Uh, immersion is going to happen over time. There's so many data centers out there that aren't physically set up and capable of doing immersion today. And we're looking at how do you retrofit a current data center with those immersion blocks. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of it. It started really got popular with uh, Bitcoin. 
because they're running such high densities. Um, so that's kind of where, where it really began to pick off. And then when you did the high density or high performance compute, uh, it began to make sense there. I mean, there's been, I go back to the early days and I'll date myself and IBM and mainframes were, were liquid cooled uh, back in the day. So it's not a new thing, but it's something that I think as people look to build out data centers and depending on the application and the compute that they're, they're, they're working on, if it's super high density, it makes sense to maybe make that part of the data center with immersion cooling. And, and there's two, two types, you know, there's a single phase and a two phase. Uh, we're, we're involved with both. And I would say that the, the key thing is that um, we need to make sure that the process to make this fluid is environmentally friendly. And traditionally, it necessarily hasn't. But I think a lot of the providers of fluid have come up with alternate ways to, to make it uh, more friendly. Because the last thing in the world you want to do is say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saving efficiency over here, helping the environment. But then but the process of making the fluid is, is, is 10 times worse. Well, net, net, you're not doing the right thing for a carbon you know, neutral or negative. So things are things are changing and evolving there, and it's going to happen over time. Uh, we've seen people playing with water-cooled racks, uh, you know, not full immersion, but water-cooled for, for years. Uh, and it's got its own uh, pluses and, and, and negatives as well. But I think over a period of time, I, don't, I won't see data centers all immersion or all chip-level cooled. I think you're going to have a combination of zones within a data center um, unless it's just a high performance, you know, data crunching data center, and they say, okay, I want to do full full tanks everywhere. But that's that's kind of what we're seeing today. People do you th- people are in the early stages. Yeah, it's just a sort of a, a really small niche today. Bitcoin, as you said, well, Bitcoin is not small, but uh, yeah. in, in terms of traditional computing, that's a it's a pretty small niche, especially immersion, full immersion. So, do you think it will remain a niche? Maybe perhaps you know bigger than it is today, but uh, um, how I, I guess how mainstream do you think it will be? Well, I, I think it will be a mainstream offering. I, again, I don't think everything goes that way, but I believe that it becomes more mainstream uh, for various applications and uh, compute instances that uh, that people want. So I, but it will take time, right? Uh, you know, first first fluid spill on the on on, on the data center floor, and, and then people are going to be okay. Some of this, some of the single phase stuff. It's pretty messy to clean up if there if there is a spill or if there's a problem. So, I would say that it's as anything happens, um, it's going to take time. But I, I think that it will be it will be an area that we'll participate in, and we'll see it grow over time. And um, last question around software: What are you guys doing on the software front, namely analytics? Um, you can collect a lot of operational data from data center facilities, make it available to people. You guys have been doing that for a while. You've been doing some kind of basic analytics. Um, what's your strategy, maybe long-term or medium-term, for making that data you know, useful for customers using kind of the more advanced, more modern things like um, AI and things like that? Sure. No, great, great question. And our focus, you're right, we've been collecting data for a long time. We've got a lot of connected sites, uh, tens of thousands of them, where we collect that data and bring it in. It wasn't until last probably year or two that we began to think about AI and, okay, how can I, um, there's two things that have to happen. I've got to censor my equipment properly. So we started a couple years ago and looking at, okay, where can I put sensors within the equipment to get the data I need to do predictive failure analysis? How do I know a fan's going to fail, right? Well, fans make certain noises potentially uh, that you know that the bearings are going bad or they're going to fail at some point in time. 
So getting the product censored upright is the first and foremost, and being able to get that data back to a data lake somewhere securely is is very important as well, especially with all of the uh, you know stuff that's going on out there around security. Once we have that data, really taking that and utilizing that to um, to really optimize how we look at things from predictive failure analysis, but all how we optimize the actual running of that equipment. We've been doing AI within the data center thermal management space with our ICOM S product for a long time, where we have all our units hooked up through this software. It's actually on site. It begins to learn the uh, the data center and understand when it, things turn up and when things turn down. And so um, we've been doing using data uh, like that for a while, and you'll continue to see more of that, whether it's uh, with uh, with the powertrain and how we do things. Uh, so what we we don't necessarily talk about. Um, and advertise, uh, but you know when we do talk to our customers, we are taking uh, we are taking data and, and utilizing that to be able to better, really better service them. Uh, and and we think there'll be more and more analytics uh, uh, rather than just doing preventive maintenance. You know, arrive on site with the part, knowing exactly what you've got to go fix. Uh, and data data can certainly help there. So make make the system more efficient and allow us to do really predictive uh, uh, failure analysis and, and fix things before they break. So, so do you guys, you guys have, um, I don't know, a strategy formulated around this, around oh, uh, uh, building pr- predictive capabilities over time? A- a- absolutely, absolutely do. I mean, we've got, uh, and just give you one example, um, just an extreme amount of data on batteries and understanding the different manufacturers and how they perform, how these batteries performed over the last 10 years. So that, that's an area, you know, first and foremost, batteries are a problem in the data center. So understanding those and, and taking that pain out and knowing, hey, we're just not going to come and replace them every three years. We're going to replace them when they need to be. Maybe it's two years or maybe it's five years. So that's an example of, of, of data and things we've been doing for a while. Um, and and uh, those are the types of things we can do, uh, I think, you know, going forward. And, and we certainly invested you know, we stood up and I think we announced uh, we hadn't had a CTO, right? It's kind of been like the office of the CTO, but Stephen Liang became our, our recent CTO about a year ago. And we've, uh, through our, our uh, side of things, really have stepped up our, our spending around um, analytics, uh, data, cooperation with universities around the world, um, and, and, and building those partnerships, and we'll continue to do that. And so I'm I'm really excited about the things that are that are going to come out of our software strategy. You know, we've also you know we've also one of the things we we did announce is we working with Honeywell. Um, we announced one thing that we're working on them, but I talked publicly that you know a broader partnership there. They've got a lot of big uh, analytics and software capabilities, and through that partnership, we'll uh, we'll collaborate and work on things uh, uh, together that will drive more value to the customer and, and drive their systems and make them more efficient. Rob, thank you so much. That's all I have. Thank you for talking to me for such a long time. Yeah, no, that's great. No, it's great, great to great to talk to you, and uh, glad you had a, a good trip to Croatia. And look, look forward to catching up with you. I really appreciate your time today. 